Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for June 27th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Good to have you all on. And tonight, uh, here in about 20 minutes, we're so excited to have Yair Gitsa uh, from Catalyst. He is their chief scientist and they did this report like what happened in election 2020, and it was so comprehensive and thorough, and so we're so glad to have Yair come on here in about 20 minutes to take questions and explain that report to us, uh, because it's very well probably the most comprehensive, you know, data-based um, report on the 2020 election, and so that's going to be great to talk about. Um, in the meantime, there's been a lot of politics uh, political issues, but there was also an issue that when it happened, and certainly for most facets of the issue, is not a political issue, shouldn't be a political issue. Down the road, it may become a political issue, but, but late in the week in Surfside, Florida, there was quite a tragedy where two um, condos collapsed. Uh, I don't remember exactly how many stories they were. Um, they've, As of today, they've confirmed nine dead and 152 people are still accounted for. They are just hoping that they can reach people in time or possibly somebody may just appear that luckily wasn't in the building. But it was overnight when one would think that the building was as um, full as it would be compared to, you know, several hours later, unfortunately. Um, Catherine, I'm sure you saw the video and have seen some of the coverage afterwards. Your initial thoughts. It's just heartbreaking to see that, and uh, it, it, I mean, it just creates fear for all of us that, you know, this could happen. Um, I think we're lear- learning slowly but surely that there might have been, there, there was some um, structural damage to the building, um, and it, it just, ca- I think it causes all of us to wonder, well, who's checking that stuff, and how are they addressing it so it's but it's just heartbreaking for the families especially with people continuing to be missing it's just it must be it's just my heart goes out to them and I hope they can you know come to some you know I hope they can find everyone uh and you know help provide some comfort for the families it's it's uh just really heartbreaking Yes. Um, Tim, when the two towers fell in the video, um, it was certainly not the cause of it. It was nothing like uh, 9-11 in New York. But the way the, you know, the buildings fell, um, I don't think we've had an American tragedy that looked like that in the past 20 uh, years. Um, what were some of your thoughts on it? it- it was actually one building. What happened was the middle of the building collapsed first, and then the outer edge of that building fell. It was a 12-story building. It has a sister building built at the same time, just like it next door to it, and now they're concerned about that. Um I, I, I thought about, you know, those poor people, what, but the first thing I thought was, how, how could this building just fall? You know, I mean, we saw what happened on 9-11. We know how those buildings fell. But how suddenly did this thing just fall? And uh, like Catherine said, it was known that the building needed a lot of work. Uh, in 2018, they had uh, done an inspection on it and determined that a bunch of work was needed. And I think some had actually started, but they had started 
of all places up on the roof. Um, but there's been all kinds of speculation as to what might have happened. Uh, they think, you know, Miami's built on limestone uh, and a lot of it on reclaimed land, which this building was on. And they think that part of the building was sinking at like one to three millimeters a year. That's not a lot. But if you spread it out over a long time, well, it is a lot. Residents had mentioned hearing groans and creaks in the building. And uh, some had complained about, you know, concrete cracking, walls cracking, that sort of thing. Uh, so what was it? Was it unstable land? Uh, is it uh, sea level rise from climate change might be a reason? Uh, buildings don't just fall. And unfortunately, uh, right now, of course, before they figure out what happened, they, they have to deal with the tragic loss of, of, of life uh, as a result of this. I'm, I'm very fearful they're not going to find anybody else, but, uh, but we'll see. Yes, I mean, at this point, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to go through the rubble and, you know, hopefully find uh, living people, but, but go through it and, and, and find um, the remains so the people can properly mourn and um, know with certainty um, what happened to their loved ones. And then also check this building next door. Um, I have a feeling the people that live there, they probably wouldn't want to go in, but I don't even know when they can go <laughs> in and get their stuff. Because, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you'd have to think that building is, I mean, I'm sure they're checking it to a point, and then at some point they'll have to let the people go in and get their items, their belongings, and then they're essentially, you would think, homeless. Because I can't imagine that they're not going to have to do work to where that building's going to be um, unstable at some point, too, since it's built together. And, Tim, thanks for correcting me with the two. I guess, you know, the way it felt, it looked like two buildings, and, of course, they kept mentioning two it buildings. It did look like two because yeah. of the way it felt, yeah. Yeah, and so, because um, the other part, you know, stayed for seconds, I guess, but uh, it stayed longer um, the way they cut the video up and show it. Um, so just so tragic, and, and right now there doesn't need to be a politicization of anything that happens, but you know it will come, and it's so unfortunate because this is where you need to find out what happened, and you need mm -hmm. to, you know, for other buildings, because Florida in particular, the Miami area is full of condos just like this. I did hear that there were some reports that the swimming pool may have been leaking that caused some erosion, and that would be, a, you know, like a regulation uh, monitoring maintenance issue that would need to be fixed. But then also, Tim, you sent the report that talked about the limestone and talked about how seawater's creeping up just a few inches a little at a time can wear that limestone away and, you know, uh, degrade that foundation. Um, I kind of think about the hymn, and Tim, you listen to gospel music, you'll probably know the exact words, but you know, build your house on solid ground, all other ground is sinking sand, or, or what is the exact mm -hmm. uh, line for the hymn? Even though that's metaphorical, um, that came to mind because, you know, if, if you're on a beach and you're not, you know, firmed into something concrete and strong, um, then, well, you know, it's not going to have a good foundation. Here's another scary thing. Uh, many experts have been warning down there that the city of Miami and the surrounding area needs to invest in technology that can determine which buildings are at risk for exactly what just happened. If, if it happened to this one building, you know there are a lot of other buildings, including the building right next door, that are of similar age that they need to be looking at with stuff like this, especially on the coast with the salt air and, like I said, the seeping water. Uh, I, I believe in the Miami area, 
the ocean has risen a foot in the last century, and like half of that is in the last 30 years. So the rise is accelerating. Here's another thing, guys. Uh, This I just heard this morning. Over 40 of the missing people are actually citizens of other countries like Israel, several countries in South America. I don't know how they came to be in that particular condo. Do y'all? We guess just like someone can own a home in Mexico or, you know, Italy or whatever, and you can own a second residence that's a vacation home, my guess Uh could be something like that. Um, Yeah. But, but, I mean, it's anecdotal. You would have to go through and – and find out all the different stories um, of how people got there. Um, well, C- Catherine, the, you know, we say don't politicize it, but I'm going to ask something political about it. My hope is is that the governor of Florida is a intelligent man in that he's got degrees from two top Ivy League schools, and if he's presented with facts that – Erosion from you know seawater rise, sea level rise caused this. Will he use that scientific information like science and just deal with it? It's not Republican, it's not Democratic, it's not conservative, it's not liberal. It's just fact, and, and respond accordingly. Or will possible political um, ambitions get in the way of that? Well, I think it's I think it's going to be very complicated. Um, I think it's really hard to say what's going to happen until we have a better understanding of what happened. Um, if they can, you know, put a lot of um, onus on climate change and like we're talking uh, salt water and and these um, environmental the environmental impact then he's going to probably have to start thinking about climate change and its impact on Florida. But the other possibility is that it's, you know, uh, a lack of oversight from both the, uh, the, I mean, I'm sure they'll go back and look at the builder and make sure that they met all the um, building requirements and then maintenance and um, response to complaints from residents. So I think it's very, um, I think the political nature of it is going to, in a large part, be somewhat dependent on what the causes were, if they can figure it all out. Obviously, it's probably going to be a combination of all those things. But um, we can only hope that it, it does make people sit up a little and think more about climate change and the impact on on structures and uh, in, and infrastructure in general. Yeah, and by the same token, I mean, if they find out that the chief and primary cause of this was the swimming pool leaked and eroded the ground for a long time, now obviously they'll have to look at, you know, how you check these things, and that'll be a different issue. But, I mean, I think people that might want to talk about climate change would not be able to use this as an issue. So use science fairly either way, but I do think that there are going to be issues where, uh, in particular, governors like Ron DeSantis in a state like Florida are going to have to respect the science if they want to not solve the problem but prevent the problems from happening as quickly or react in the best way. Tim, final word on this one. Yeah, the this is a very densely populated area. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people love it in that area. They like living there. They like staying there. They like visiting there. The question is, what could you do in the short term about any of this? Because obviously it's going to take a while to go through all of this, not only to deal with the loss of life and, and find everyone that they can, but then the investigation itself is going to take a while. What could you do in the short term 
to allay the fears of those right around there. There's a lot of high-rise buildings right around that thing. Uh, what what could you do if you're a government official? Yeah, I mean, I think immediately they have to check all the foundations and make people believe that they're checking them through structural building construction procedures, not, hey, we just want everybody to be happy or we want everybody to be fearful for no reason. We want it based yeah. on, you know, knowledge. Um, yeah. But I, 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 you just have to wonder, and I see this about Miami. Miami's a place that in the last few months or maybe a little closer to a year, they've been trying to recruit technology businesses. Um, they're trying to become, you know, their own little technology hub, and uh, I think they're kind of selling, oh, well, you know, California higher taxes and regulations and all this, but you still have the sunny weather that you would in California, and they're trying to sell that. Well, that can sell to one extent unless people are afraid that the city is one of the f- most at risk for climate change, which it's said to and be. It is. And if that's accelerated, that that's going to happen faster than people were um, fearing or anticipating. So, uh, yep. I mean, all that's going to come into being, and I think it's going to be a huge impact in Florida politics. I mean, climate change probably should be an issue in all 50 states, but in, in Florida, given that it has so much coastline, um, that it's got to be one of the top issues there if they're, you know, basing things in reality and not worrying about unnecessary fears like we talked about last week on one of our topics of the Texas wall. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's go ahead, and speaking of last week, let's kind of get into something um, that we started in last week in a different way. We like to do buy-sell holds on the show, and we talked about Chris Jones, um, Democratic candidate for governor of Arkansas. Well, only to be fair, they have two well-known, well-funded candidates on the Republican side, both women, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and uh, Attorney General Leslie Rutledge. We're going to do, work on their campaigns here in just a minute, but Catherine, to be fair, since you didn't get a chance to talk about Chris Jones, uh, give us your thoughts along with your buy-sell hold. Looks like a great candidate. I'm all in. Bye. Okay. Um, well, that was uh, succinct and letting us get on to the next one. And so let's uh, let's <laughs> talk about this. I'll set this race up. I mean, Leslie Rutledge is the in-state politician that's won elective office, I believe, multiple terms as attorney general. I guess you might say it's her turn. Now, we can, of course, dispute if it's ever your turn, um, you know, in a democracy. It's the voter's choice on whose turn it is. But it was, and probably in her thinking, her turn, and then here comes back from D.C. or back from Northern Virginia – uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Her father had been governor, and she was probably, I would say, much better known as the press secretary for Donald Trump for, I guess, the the majority of, or at least plurality of his um, only term. Um, Catherine, I, since you were so quick, I, I'll let you have this one again on um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Buy, sell, hold on her campaign. Well, I would like to say that she she came back from the 1950s to the 2000s, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I think she. I mean, as a, I, I'm I'm taking off my partisan hat and just saying, as a candidate, um, I think she will be very popular and can probably raise money pretty significantly because of her name recognition and. Uh, you know, uh, adoration of um, Donald Trump. So I'm going to do a buy on her. And do you want me to do Leslie too? No, we we can do them separately. Okay. We'll give them all their time. But Catherine, okay. I want to do a follow up. Okay, you say she's back from the 1950s, and I know what you're saying. Her social politics and things like that. But you you, you know, in the 1950s, a Republican or I, or I should say a candidate, because it may have been an uber-conservative Democrat way back when, but a candidate of um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' leanings would have probably not run. It would have been Mr. Sanders, right? 
her husband. Mm. Oh well, that's that's <laughs> true. But you're, I mean, I, I I'm just, I was making a joke. So yeah, I'm I know sorry. you are. I mean, I'm just, but I'm trying. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm not like making a point on you. I'm just trying to, you know, talk about this because here's another thing that I find very vexing. Hillary Clinton, Hillary Rodham Clinton, was the um, uh, first lady of Arkansas. Okay, I got a. I've planted a seed. We're going to get back to this seed here in a little while, but I am so excited right now to welcome into the kudzu vine from Catalyst, Yair Gitzel. Welcome, Yair. Hey, nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, great to have you on your show. Well, before we get into this report that you've done uh, that we can't wait to talk about, just kind of give our listeners um, a little bit of information on your background. Sure. Um, so I, I work at a, this company called Catalyst. Uh, we are a, a voter file company and a data company. So a lot of the ways that campaigns are run these days are off of voter registration databases. Um, so what we do and what a lot of other people uh, across the political space do is we uh, collect these voter registration databases that are maintained by each Secretary of State, um, collect them, standardize them, sort of make them available for uh, campaigns, organizations, researchers, academics. You know, this type of data is sort of increasingly being used in lots of different ways. So, I mean, that's more about my company than about, about me personally, but <laughs> I, I don't know if that's what you're, what you're, what you're asking about. Well, Yair, thanks for the follow-up question. Um, we want to know about you as well. If you want to tell about yourself, now obviously it's great to tell about your company, and I may have a question on that, but but tell us about your life. Oh, sure. Um, well, so I, I've been doing this kind of work for a while. I mean, before that, I'm uh, I'm from Israel originally. That's my name. Or that's where my name is from. Um, and uh, professionally, I mean, I used to be a computer science person, um, you know, back uh, doing undergrad work, I did computer science work, really doing coding stuff, um, artificial intelligence, things like that, um, but started doing political work in 2004. Um, I was sort of, I, I got into politics really thinking about the Iraq War. Um, that was me kind of coming out of college. Um, that really got me interested in working in politics. So, I started working for the Kerry Convention in Boston in 2004, uh, worked on the Kerry campaign, and then have been doing this kind of work, uh, looking at political data work, survey work, things like that, um, from that point forward, either uh, inside of campaigns and organizations or, again, in academia. I went and I got my PhD in political science to really try to understand politics, understand statistics, really try to to get as good as I can get at this type of work. Um, so I've sort of been one foot in the academic world and one foot in the, you know, campaign and organizations world, um, you know, really trying to um, make it, you know, trying to understand how all these different things work and make a contribution in terms of um, understanding what's going on in politics. Yes. Well, now, y your answer about your company, Catalyst, brought me to another question. As you're explaining it, um, I know that a lot of our listeners that work in campaigns are probably familiar with, say, NGP Van, that you actually will pull up the data. Is your company work on the voter file where it works with that, or are they more of a competitor for y'all, or how does that all fit in for people that actually use the voter files? Sure. So, um, I mean, first of all, so there is a bit of a separation between the Democratic and the Republican side. So we work with uh, progressive organizations, Democratic campaigns, and, you know, you mentioned NGP Van, and it's, it's the same they do as well. Uh, so the way that it works is that there are a few companies that actually collect the back-end voter file data. Uh, there's us. Uh, there's another company called Target Smart. Um, the DNC, you know, the Democratic National Committee, they do it as well. Um, and so the VAN is sort of the front-end software that a lot of people use to access the data. And so, you know, our data goes into it, those other, uh, the other voter files go into it also. Um, and so different groups access different types of data, but they use the VAN to access the data. 
they also use our, we also have software um, that we provide as well, but a lot of, you're right that a lot of people use the, use MGP van, uh, and it's, it's very popular. Yes, and I know there's probably more companies. I just, A, I was familiar with it, and B, I knew I was probably safe mentioning them because I knew you were on his, uh, Nathaniel Perlman's podcast recently, so I thought, well, <laughs> I'm not mentioning an enemy. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, so, so that brings us to this, this report. Well, you know, your your firm's, of course, compiling uh, voter files and all, but you wouldn't have to do this uh, campaign 2020 report. What kind of uh, motivated y'all to do this work? Uh, sure. So, well, so it starts with a question of really trying to understand what happened in the election. And your listeners may know of some different data sources that are out there. A lot of people will look at election results, which are available uh, pretty quickly at the state level, of course, and at the county level. And then people use different types of surveys that are out there. So, uh, you know, when you're watching uh, the news that night and people are looking at results, they're looking at things like the exit poll and they're using other survey data that's out there. And, you know, a lot of that data is really good and really useful. But I think, I mean, as I mentioned, I've been working with this data for a while. And I think it's become increasingly clear that sometimes there are difficulties in using that survey data. So, you know, this is a little bit of a separate topic, but I think people are probably familiar with how surveys have had some problems in recent years in terms of predicting who was going to win the presidential election in, you know, 2020 and 2016 to some extent. So, you know, the, the, the geographic election return, that is good, hard, solid data. But when you're trying to answer things like, what percent of the electorate was white non-college and how did uh, African-Americans vote for Biden versus Trump? Um, that really relies on survey data. And um, it's just a technical challenge, right? There are different data sources that are out there. They have different pieces of uncertainty around them. And so what we're trying to do is uh, really try to answer those similar types of questions to try to, you know, given more time and, given the additional data that we have access to, really try to get more detailed answers and, you know, a better sense of what happened with the benefit of the additional data and the benefit of, you know, doing our report six months after the election as opposed to really trying to figure out what's happening in real time on election night. Yes. Well, let me just kind of ask – I'm going to ask a combo question – um, so I guess I'll ask it out one time, but it's really two questions. A lot of times we hear about campaign autopsies. I think a better way to think about it is like game film and sports, you know, why you won, why you lost. Because even if you win or lose, you break down your game film to see what happened. Um, if, And I know you work for progressive organizations, but let's just say that both the Democrats and the Republicans came to you and said, just give us the bird's eye view. Why did we um, lose this election? Why did we win this election? Uh, for each party, um, what would be kind of your bullet points for, you know, what to correct or improve on in the future? Well, I mean, that's a really detailed question. And in our report, we try to answer pieces of that. But I wouldn't say that we have, you know, the full story in terms of the why. Um, so, I mean, first of all, so I, just to say it, I mean, for, for us, we're, uh, we do work more for progressive organizations. But for this and, we, you know, we do some things that are directed towards them. But for this type of report, I mean, we're, we're basically trying to be the census, right? Like, we think that in terms of doing a post-election analysis of what happened, you know, from our perspective, there's no use in trying to be, you know, partisan in any way. That doesn't help anybody, you know, our clients or anyone. You sort of really have to have a clear idea like you're, like you're talking about. So, you know, that, that's kind of what we try to do in the report. You know, what we're trying to do is answer a lot of the what happened as opposed to the why it happened. You know, there's, there's you know, as I was mentioning, there is just so much um, uncertainty around some of these data sources that really trying to get at the answers of, you know, what were the implications of higher turnout and, you know, how did these different – uh, groups decide to vote this time. That's kind of the, the focus of what we're doing. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're not so much focused on the different issues that drove uh, the different vote choice uh, for different groups. 
you know, we're probably going to be looking at some of that stuff later on, but that wasn't the main focus of this report. So, I mean, I'm not sure this is going to answer your question, but I'm happy to, to, to jump in at what some of the big, you know, demographic trends are, you know, in terms of like turnout and things like that, if that, if that helps. Oh, sure. And, and Catherine and Tim both have questions in that vein, too. I'm going to ask one more for right now, and then I have a few more after they um, ask their questions. But this one would be, um, in 2020, a lot of people speculated that Donald Trump pretty much maxed out the non-college-educated white vote. Like, he reached higher levels than it had. I guess, in many ways, every group reached the highest level it had. Do you think that he had, or the Republicans have maxed out that vote, or could they possibly take it to another level in future elections? Well, I mean, for what it's worth, we actually have it, in our numbers, we have it um, close to the max in 2020. Let's see, for White Mouth College, we have uh, Joe Biden at 37% support. In 2016, it was actually even a little bit lower than that at 36% support. Um, I would say it's definitely true that, um, I mean, those are, those are very close to one another. Um, so I would say it's definitely true that among that group, we see Trump over the course of both elections, you know, really, you know, being close to maxing out in terms of what we've seen historically. Look, I mean, I think what you're asking is really one of the big questions moving forward, um, you know, I think given what we've seen in terms of uh, where the Republican Party uh, has continued to go ever since Trump has left office, you know, I think that there is a good sense that they're really doubling down on a lot of his strategies and really trying to uh, go after that group quite a bit more. I mean, maybe they'll succeed, um, maybe not. But it is worth noting that, you know, Trump, I think, was a very particular candidate in a lot of ways. And whether we like him or not, I mean, I think that he did do, he was pretty successful uh, in speaking to that segment of the country, which is a really, you know, large segment of the country. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how people will try to take up that mantle and how successful they'll be. Um, one thing that I should say about that group is that they are a really large portion of the electorate. We have them at 44% of the electorate, uh, but that is going down, right? Um, I mean, it's not going to go down to like 30% or anything, but, you know, we have it from in 2008, they were over half the electorate at 51%, and it's just, you know, sort of been going down slowly and steadily by a couple points per year. So to the extent that Republicans are focusing on that and counting on maximizing that group, um, you know, they still are a very, very large group, but it is worth noting that it is getting smaller over time, and that's going to continue because that just reflects the, you know, population characteristics or the, 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 demographic, population, the demographic characteristics of the population. Yes. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pass it to Catherine, who have questions, and then pass it to Tim, and then they may come back to me at the end. Catherine? Hey, thanks so much for being on here tonight. Um, I'm, I was excited to, to learn that you were going to be here because I've worked with NGP and I, uh, I have a lot of uh, – I have further confidence after hearing your intro in the data that we can all pull from that. So I think the most interesting um, part of the report that I, I read was about the uh, – urban, suburban, and um, rural vote and how that, I, I mean, the, the really the thing that really shocked me was the um, increase in urban vote to the Republicans. I mean, it was only a little bit. But what do you, what do you think, do you have any um, idea of what the reasons for that are? Yeah, so... I mean, just to give the, the sort of the whole picture of what happened there, I mean, I think that um, people probably know that rural areas are much more Republican, urban areas are much more Democratic, and suburban areas are much, you know, have been more in the middle. That continued, that's been going on now for a while. It really increased to a really large extent in 2016. Um, 
you know, stayed the same in 2018 and 2020. It got a little bit lower. You're right that it went down by by a point or so in the urban areas. Um, you know, I think it was it, it's by about two points. Um, and it was counteracted by uh, continued gains for Biden in the suburbs um, and a little bit in rural areas. Um, but, look, I mean, I think you're right. So one of, you know, one of the big – uh, questions and one of the big surprises. That, I, I guess I would say that was one of the big surprises for me also, um, looking at the results here. You know, another big project that I did in 2020 was I actually looked at a lot of the economic impacts of COVID and was really trying to um, project those down to small geographic areas to try to help, you know, with the response and understand which places were being hurt. And it turns out that the places that were really hurt economically were cities. Um, you know, so uh, I think we know, you know, what happened that um, COVID hit big cities first and a lot of uh, what was going on in cities, like, really, really changed. And uh, it wasn't just cities, but it was in particular, you know, black and, and Hispanic people or people who are really hurt economically by COVID. So to be honest, I was a little bit surprised. I mean, if you had asked me in the summer and we saw that that's what was going on in cities, you know, both economically and both in terms of the public health impacts of COVID, I would have expected that there would have been, you know, a really big uh, surge for Democrats in those places. And that's not what we saw, right? We saw in cities um, things kind of go down a little bit. Um, and particularly in those populations, although turnout really did go up, you know, for those groups as well. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty, you know, difficult story, you know, to try to understand exactly why that happened. I mean, one thing that is worth keeping in mind is when we're talking about the fact that it went down, it was very, very high to begin with. So, you know, if you go and if you're looking at the uh, most urban areas, you know, they're already in the 80s and 90s you know, in terms of support levels for Democrats. So, you know, it, you can't really expect it to go up very much from there. So that's a little bit of a, you know, ceiling effect, they call it in statistics, that you can't go, you know, you're going to hit the ceiling. So that may be part of what's going on. But I agree with you that really trying to understand, you know, some of the reasons for the drop I think is really important. Do you think it could have anything to do with um, some of the um, – uh, you know, like here in Atlanta, we had, like, long lines and, you know, problems at the polling places and a lot, a fair amount of confusion around early voting. And so do you think that it could have been discouraged voters that just were like, you know, I got three kids who are doing virtual school and I, I got to do my job from home and, you know, <laughs> I just don't have time to vote. Do you think that... Is yeah, it's, any... I mean, I, yeah, go, well, go I look, I mean, I, I think it's possible. I would say that I haven't seen much evidence showing that that was a huge problem. So, okay. I mean, the, the biggest story, I think, of this election was just the just historically high turnout. I mean, it went, so we had 160 million voters this time. That's up from 138 million voters last time. So turnout really was through the roof. Um, and it was that that historic turnout really had a bunch of, had a number of implications, which I can, you know, go into if you want. Um, but so, I mean, it's, it's difficult, right? Because one thing that we do and other people do also is we, over the course of the election cycle, we keep track of, registration data and compare it to past cycles. So, um, you know, one thing that we saw before COVID uh, in, back in 2020 was that registrations were really, really high, right? More and more people were registering, and we were just expecting this, like, super high turnout. Once COVID hit, registrations basically flatlined. Um, and, you know, it's worth noting, I mean, new registrants tend to vote for Democrats more, so you know, this is something that I know a lot of people were really worried about. So registrations really flatlined for a while. Eventually they picked up again, but they didn't get 
quite as high as we were expecting early on. So, you know, by that metric, I think what you're saying might be right, that maybe there were some people who were sort of marginal voters and they may have voted and they may have registered and they sort of just didn't, didn't get to it because they were busy. But it's difficult just because the turnout really was so high. I mean, you know, when we go up to a higher turnout rate than we've seen, you know, basically in history, you know, and we're up to 160 million votes, it's just it's a difficult question because we're sort of implying that it could have been even more, right, like 165 or 170. And, I mean, that's, that's possible, but I wouldn't say that we have, like, hard evidence that that's, you know, that that's actually what happened. But we do have a bunch of people who are, are, still, who are still not voting. Like, what, what, what was the number in there? Like, many millions of people who are still not, who are qualified but still not voting. So how do we uh, uh yeah. that problem? Well, I mean, I think we just have to sort of keep, keep doing what we're doing, right? So, um, I mean, you're right that there are, uh, that there are, you know, tens of millions, like tens of millions of people who are still sitting on the sidelines. And um, it's true. I mean, from a, from a progressive standpoint, um, if you look at certain areas of the country, you can see that there are a lot of people who are not voting who, you know, if we could get them to vote, they still, you know, they are likely to be more democratic leaning. So, I mean, you know, one thing I would say that the last, few years are actually pretty encouraging. I mean, 2018 and 2020, both were some of the highest turnout elections that we've ever seen. So I'd say one piece of good news is we know that um, voting is habitual. You know, once people do start voting, they are likely to continue to vote. So, you know, hopefully we're, you know, this is a really good sign and we're going to see a lot of these really diverse communities and younger people come out more and more. Um, but I mean, you're right that there still are a lot of people who are out there. Um, and, you know, I think, um, really pushing to, uh, expand voting rights as people have been doing, you know, really encouraging people to get involved in the political system more and more. I mean, outside of just the, you know, the partisan consequences of that, um, you know, I think that's just, you know, the right thing to do just to, get more people involved in the democratic process. Great. Great answers. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm going to pass it to Tim. Go ahead, Tim. Good evening, Dr. Gitson. Thank you for being with us tonight. You just mentioned younger voters. Does your data show any trends developing as to whether younger voters are being engaged more and more? Or is it like 2008 when there was a surge and then a drop-off again? What's your data showing about younger voters right now? Well, I mean, first just talking about 2018 and 2020, um, I mean, like Mm -hmm. I was saying before, uh, the turnout overall uh, in those elections was just through the roof and particularly Mm -hmm. among younger voters. So, Mm -hmm. you know, just to give some statistics, if we're looking at 2020, uh, comparing it to 2016, and we look at it by generation, um, Gen Z, uh, they were um, about three times as many votes this time as they were in 2016. Now that's Mm -hmm. a little bit inflated because some of them were ineligible, you know, but they're up about 300%. Uh, millennials, their, you know, number of votes were up by about 30%, Gen X by 15%, boomers up by about 5%. So I don't know if you, mm-hmm. you know, heard that in detail, but basically the younger generations are the ones where turnout was up um, by, by a bunch. And that makes sense because, you know, older voters, generally speaking, vote more. So when you see these really high turnout elections, it really is the younger voters who are driving a lot of that. Um, so mm-hmm. that was just a big, big part of what ended up happening in this past election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of moving, in terms of what's going to happen moving forward, I mean, I sort of have a mixed answer here. Um, you know, the reasons as to why turnout went up in the past two elections, you know, I think part of it was 
uh, democratic enthusiasm and a lot of the long-term uh, organization building that, you know, people have been doing, really trying to focus on expanding the franchise and really trying to get people out to vote like I was talking about. But, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, at least my, my sense of it, and I think a lot of people's, is that a lot of this was uh, enthusiasm against Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. I think for me and for a lot of other people, um, probably the baseline expectation is that turnout is probably going to go down a little bit, relatively speaking, moving forward. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and we've seen a few special elections where um, turnout was very good, but it wasn't, you know, necessarily quite at the levels that we've seen in the past. And so, you know, I think that's sort of, I think that is probably where a lot, where, where we would expect things to, to land is like high, but not necessarily as high as you saw in, you know, 2018 and 2020. Um, mm-hmm. To say it another way, I mean, I think that's one of the major challenges, you know, for Democrats and for campaigns is, you know, now that we have these people who have voted for the first time in the past uh, election and who, you know, really have shown a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, I was talking before about how voting can be habitual. So to mm-hmm. the extent that uh, Democrats can keep those people engaged uh, and can keep them voting as opposed to sort of having you know, younger people um, dropping off in the midterms, which is sometimes what happens. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. going to go a long way in terms of understanding what ends up happening in, in 2022 and then ultimately in 2024. Um, moving to another group, um, 10% of the vote is now Hispanic. And it's always been assumed by pundits and the average citizens alike that most Latino voters will automatically be Democratic voters, but the the research done by Catalyst uh, suggests that, that that's not necessarily true, and it certainly was not true in 2020. And and my question there, I, I'm not sure that, that, that you can answer, but I'm, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Do we know if this surge of voters toward Donald Trump in the Latino community was provided by new voters or was it previous voters that the Democrats just lost to Trump? Do do we know? So um, I think that's a really good question, and I think it's a little bit of both. So I mean, Uh just to give the numbers to to your listeners, uh, we have the Latino vote at uh, 70% in 2012, 71% in 2016, and then down to 63% in 2020. So, I mean, I guess I'd say a couple of things. So one is, um, it is, so that is down, right? That is a drop of eight points, but it, mm-hmm. is, it still is at 63%, right? I mean, that's still, I would say that Latinos still are a core of the Democratic uh, party uh, in a mm-hmm. major way. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that I would say is, uh, and I mentioned this before, how turnout went up sort of across the board, um, but it went up particularly among Latinos. So in terms of number of votes, they had 31% more votes in 2020 mm-hmm. than they did in 2016. Uh, mm-hmm. And I still have to say Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, they went up by almost 40 points. So those were the two groups that really, you know, grew the most, uh, you know, in percentage terms. So, you know, for Latinos, I mean, I think what you're asking about new voters, that is a, that is a, that is a major question, right? So the idea here, of course, is that if the existing voters are at 70%, but you have this huge group of new people who are coming in, you know, are, you need to keep them at 70%, right? All of the new uh-huh. people to come in in order to, to maintain that number, so some of those people are going to come in lower than that. And, you know, for a bunch of technical reasons that I won't get into, it's actually pretty difficult to measure. But from the best thing that I can see, that that is, that is definitely part of what happened. Um, that, oh. you know, some of the new people that came in, I think, were um, a little bit, you know, closer to 50-50, which put the number down, which, which did, you know, pull that number down a bit. Um, but I think it's also the case that there, you know, certainly were, some group of uh, 
Hispanic voters that voted for Clinton in 2016 and then did vote for Trump in 2020. So, I mean, we see some evidence of both. Um, and I think, you know, both played a part in what, what ended up happening. Oh, okay. I want to ask you one more question, then I'm going to throw it back to David. When you look at your data in totality, would you describe 2020 as a classic change election, or was it something a little different? Um, I don't know if I would call it a change election in the classical sense. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it sort of depends what you mean. The way that I think about it is that sometimes historically there are what, what, you know, political science call realignment elections uh, where, um, you know, things really change and different demographic groups change in pretty like fundamental ways. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we've been talking about, about differences from 2016 to 2020, but I mean, I, in terms of the partisan splits of these different groups, uh, you know, I would say stability is actually one of the major things that we've seen, right? So, oh. um, I mean, so, you know, we talked about Latinos dropping a little bit, although maintaining their Democratic support. In the other direction, over the past few years, we've seen white college-educated people moving more and more to the Democratic Party. But, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, three or four points here, you know, five or six points there. But, I mean, if you're looking, for example, at the geographic kind of like county-level election returns, they are pretty remarkably stable from year to year. Uh, and from 16 to 20, I mean, they are, they are very stable. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of change, you know, one of the, again, I would say one of the major things that I would do, you know, one of the major things I'm seeing in 2020 is the impact of turnout uh, and uh-huh. uh, how people vote. So, I mean, this time uh, I said there were 160 million voters. About 100 million people voted early, right, either voted by mail or early in person. Mm-hmm. And that's a big mm-hmm. change, right? That is a, that is a big uh, jump from 2016 mm-hmm. and from previous elections. And, you know, I mean, look, of course, Part of that was due to COVID in, you know, maybe a temporary way where people weren't as um, excited or, you know, willing to go stand in line in public for a while. Um, Part of it was, you know, maybe temporary role changes, hopefully not so temporary. I mean, I know that that's, you know, a big thing that there's obviously, you know, a lot of, like, debate uh, around right now. Um, But, you know, I guess the way that I see it is, Assuming that there are not, so to the extent that there are not major rules changes blocking people from doing so, you know, I think Mm -hmm. that convenience voting and, you know, the ability for more and more people to vote early, vote when they want to, vote when it's convenient for them. You know, I mean, for me, I live in Colorado, you know, I vote by mail now, and it's just incredibly convenient for me. And so, you know, the idea of once, you know, I think that there are going to be a lot of people that once they start doing that, you know, we'll do that more and more. So in terms of election administration and in terms of how people vote and hopefully, you know, doing what we can to make sure that more and more people have the opportunity to vote. To me, I mean, I think that that is, that is the biggest sort of sea change uh, part of this election. You know, in terms of partisan preferences, again, there are changes, but, you know, not, I, I wouldn't call it sort of a, like a classic change election in that sense. I uh, thank you for that, sir. And with that, I'll send you back to David. David? Yes, I hear one uh, final question, and that would be, since Election 2020, um, one way that Republicans in states where they control the state legislature and the governor's office, they have passed um, voting bills that um, purge the voter rolls. I know in Georgia we had 100,000 voters uh, purged. You have to show more forms of ID, ID for absentee ballots. I don't know if y'all have done any research, but just based on what the what you've looked at, what appear to be the implications of these new laws? Um, well, so I mean, we haven't done much research on it, on what these new laws in particular will do. 
Um, look, I mean, I guess the, the first thing I'd say is, and this is going to sound incredibly, like, naive of me, I realize, but, you know, I mean, I think it really just is a shame how politicized, you know, these types of questions have become. Um, you know, I mean, again, I guess it's sort of convenient for someone on my side to say the following, but, like, the way that I see it is just really, you know, trying to make it as easy and as convenient for people to vote is just, you know, should be such a core piece of how our democracy functions. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of different studies out there, you know, academic studies trying to understand, you know, the prevalence of voter fraud, you know, so that, you know, the arguments on the other side, the prevalence of voter fraud and, you know, whether elections are safe or not. And, you know, the consensus view really is that, you know, to the extent that there is any, you know, type of voter fraud, the impact that it has on elections is like zero. So, um, you know, I mean, it's, to me, it's almost sort of, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I understand sort of the history of how this all came about. And, you know, I understand why there are Republican legislatures and, you know, state houses that are, that are trying to push it in this way. It just, it's such a shame that it's sort of, that it's, that it's come this way. Um, you know, and we'll see, right? I mean, I think that, you know, there are, um, whenever something like this does happen, there is a big challenge in terms of, you know, doing, you know, what we can to try to protect the franchise. And I know that there's more and more discussion happening at the state house level and at the federal level. And, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, we can sort of move forward and, you know, again, just try to, uh, of course, have, you know, safe and, you know, fair elections, you know, with, as, with, you know, zero fraud and, you know, as little, um, you know, as little, uh, you know, challenges as possible, but, you know, really trying to expand it and make it as easy and convenient for people to vote as, as we can. Yes. Well, Yair, we want to thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine, and again, thank you for all the good your work you're doing there at Catalyst. We enjoyed having you on the show tonight. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. Good talking with you. Thank you, sir. You. All right. Uh, Yair gets uh, of Catalyst. A lot of information. If you have not uh, downloaded the uh, report um, and read it, I know it's posted most everywhere uh, when they released mm -hmm. it. Uh, definitely find it. It's an excellent read. Um, well, let's kind of go back. We just got a few minutes uh, to what we were talking about uh, with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And, you know, I was alluding to the fact that um, – when Hillary Clinton, Hillary Rodham Clinton, was the first lady of Arkansas, she felt that people criticized her for using her maiden name. Um, doesn't it seem kind of hypocritical or um, ironic, whatever, that Sarah Huckabee Sanders uses both her maiden name and her married name, Catherine? Um. I guess you could say that, but I think it's, you know, it's a long time since uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton was, uh, I mean, a lot has changed in that, in these, you know, few decades around women's names and, um, you know, sort of the recognition of, of um, using maiden names. So I, I suppose you could call it, uh, hypocritical, but I think it's also a reflection of the changing times. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying about the changing times, but I do think there is a double standard. I think if a Democratic politician tomorrow in Arkansas or a lot of other states used their maiden name, hyphenated their name, whatever, they would be criticized. And I think here Sarah Huckabee Sanders gets a pass because, oh, she's just trying to be proud of her daddy. Well, wouldn't that Democratic candidate be pr uh, proud of their, you know, maiden name heritage? I, I think there's a double standard here uh, for whatever reason. Um, Tim, weigh in on that. If you want to morph that into your buy, sell, and hold on Sarah Huckabee Sanders, do so. Of course there's a double standard. Imagine a Democratic candidate for president acting like Donald Trump did or had the baggage that Donald Trump had. Imagine what they would say about uh, about a Democratic candidate, you know, that acted like that. Uh, that being said, 
I'm going to buy Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I, I have viewed her from day one as a favorite to win this race. She's going to have the strong backing of Trump and his entire entourage. Uh, Donald Trump is very, very, very popular in that state. And uh, with his blessing, I think she's a strong favorite to win. Let's buy her. Yes. Um, do y'all remember like juice commercials back decades ago? And they'd be, oh, it's the juiciest or it's the fruitiest or it's the whatever, you know, with the EST. And I think mm-hmm. in Republican politics, if the end of the ad, they could put, she's the Trumpiest. Um, you would mm-hmm. win, and as long as people believe that claim that X candidate is the Trumpiest, and, and I think in the um, Arkansas governor's race, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to be able to say she's the Trumpiest, and that's going to win because um, people are going to believe that claim because she's one of the few people that did not leave that White House on bad terms. Um, even mm-hmm. Mike Spence left on bad terms, uh, maybe the worst, some of the worst terms, but she didn't. And so, therefore, um, I think that's going to be huge in that primary and um, propel her to victory. And, you know, we didn't get to Leslie Rutledge, and we will, because we're probably going to treat her better than a lot of um, people have treated her in Arkansas. But this is kind of a metaphor for what's happened to her campaign. She she gets uh, forgotten, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders gets all the attention. But um, never fear, we will give her attention in a future kudzu vine. But we've reached the end of the hour, and until then, it's been the Cudsey Vine. Not everybody. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. with a strong and... You know-